Welcome to the Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller podcast. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is the rookie, Chris Dashew. I prefer to be referred to as brother. I'm not a priest. I'm a brother. Yeah, that's how I, I learned from you guys. <laughs> right. I, I went to a Jesuit school. Oh, yeah, we do those. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> right. <laughs> On this episode, we're talking about three episodes from the sixth season of Barney Miller, one of the best sitcoms ever. Yes. We're talking about The Brother, which aired October 4th, 1979. The Slave, which opened, sorry, which, Jesus, which aired October 18th, 1979. And Strip Joint, which aired November 1st, 1979. Imagine that, an episode about a strip club. That never happens. (laughs) Right? Especially not on this show. (laughs) Yeah, we even got some familiar faces on that episode, too. But we'll definitely get into that. First up, we're talking about The Brother, which does not refer to Harris. It refers to the one and only uh, brother, Tom Kelvin, played by John Christie Ewing. He is a Jesuit. Well, no, he's not a Jesuit. He's some sort of a brother. And um, he's in New York. They had to bunk down there on their way to Canada, is it? Or Vermont? Something like that, yeah. Something like that. They're going off, and one of his uh, parishioners has left. uh, Joseph Hutton, played by Gary, is it Imhoff, I'm guessing? Who's a very familiar face. I think he might be the most familiar face in this episode for me. Um, Yeah. And who can blame him? I love how the... uh, The brother just keeps saying, we're not a cult, which is kind of what a person who's in a cult would say. (laughs) Sounds like something a cult cult aficionado would say, Mike. Come on, this isn't a cult. Wait, we're drinking blood? No way. That's that's common. Uh, Christ. (laughs) Right. Uh, I find find this episode interesting. I think the idea of this, you know, the brother and then the, I guess, I guess it's another it's like a soon to be brother and he's like renouncing his worldly possessions and, you know, he's going to take a vow of celibacy and blah, 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 blah. And so of course it's the age old story of, you know, comes to the city and wants some, you know, wants some ass. And that's, and that's what the, that's what the entire A plot is about is a monk who wants ass. And then Wojohowicz essentially enables it, which I think is the funniest goddamn part of the entire episode is he's just like, well, wouldn't you have done that Barney? He's like, no, no, <laughs> no, I would not. <laughs> yeah, but that underpins a... the entire episode. That's the the thing I actually really like about this episode is there's this weird underpinning of this like butting of heads between Wojo and um, Barney because he's like, you know, he's like, don't t- he's like, let me do what I want to do. Don't tell me what to do all the time, which is like very strange. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. But it's this weird through line throughout the episode. And, and I mean, it plays into the final joke, even this idea of like, I wouldn't have done that. Cause it's like, again, he's like, well, Barney, you're always telling me what to do and kind of chastising me for doing things my way, which I think is just projecting on Wojo's part. But I like that it is a interesting through line. It doesn't really work because Barney really isn't ever that character and never really has been in the history of this show. But Wojo, it's being a hothead is not surprising. No, no, not at all. Yeah. I that it kind of comes out of left field totally uh but yeah it works for me um yeah it's interesting the, the brother wants to have his own little rum springer and wojo is right there for him and i mean i'm surprised wojo doesn't call the prostitute back and say oh he's free now it's okay right. but he does have her number i think 
Yeah, I think the other thing that's interesting is it, this this kind of mirrors in a lot of ways the setup of that Jack Sue episode, the one where he almost just left. They yeah. have that like thing where it's like all of a sudden somebody is bristling at the way Barney does things. And it's like, why? Since yeah, when? And, it's, and Barney's totally perplexed. Yeah, he's it, like, well, what the fuck is your problem? It, it's strange to me, to say the least. The setup of this episode is strange because it, it's again like you you can force conflict in this show, but it does feel forced it genuinely this episode felt very forced Mm -hmm. well it was interesting too that's the a plot and the b plot is fucking hilarious (laughs) it's the better (laughs) part of the episode in every imaginable sense and it goes through the entire thing too like luckily like back when we had fish dressing and drag and just every single member of the the old one too would have to go and drag at some point, but we had yet to see Landisburg do it. We had yet to see Dietrich in a dress and he was more excited about it than he might have been. Otherwise it was wonderful seeing him talk about the chiffon and really try to pick out the right, you know, wrap for his dress. Oh, it was, it was chef's kiss. Beautiful. And his interactions with Ruan Glass are great too, oh, especially yes. when he's like, "What you know?" Uh, he's like, "What do you think?" He's like, "Oh yeah." <laughs> it's like, I, and I don't get it because Steve Landisberg doesn't look terrible in a dress. No. I, I mean, it's a very handsome woman. Let's put it that way. But like, there are plenty of AFAB females who are in the same sense like a a handsome woman is a term that has existed long before steve landisberg put on a dress so it was like ron glass looked less believable in a dress and it's and it's like it's weird to me because of all of the people who have been in a dress steve landisberg is the one that looks the best frankly and they but they spend so much time ragging on it i was like what are you guys seeing that i'm not is it the guy's adam's apple (laughs) (laughs) and that's the best thing yeah like harris thinks that he's really going to be ribbon dietrich and dietrich's going to be all you know demure about stuff but instead dietrich is just like oh yeah you like these and you you like the shoes (laughs) and that is that is the other thing i really appreciate is that dietrich in in every sense of the word leans into it which obviously i mean i i don't think there is any universe where this show exists that he isn't always leaning into things. He's always leaning into things as a character. That's like kind of part of the charm is that he just kind of pops into frame and then pops out of frame, but it's always to like, there's always like a point behind it. And this one, like you, he's more at the center in this episode than he has been a lot of the time. He's normally a bit player, but a big bit player, like the the third highest bit player is what it feels like sometimes. And the C story that we have going on here, it's the return of Luger. Yay! Finally. It's about time, man. I was missing Luger now, and he's pretty upset because old Brownie died. <laughs> <laughs> oh you look spiffy uh inspector i was up cheating old brownie oh my god this guy's <laughs> life is depressing like <laughs> jesus christ and then he's going through the guys that were on the the original squad with him and he's just like i'm the only one left now barn that's like <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I love James Gregory. Uh, you know, I, I think at this point, obviously, uh, we've come a long way since the first season of the show, but he is always such a welcome presence. And his 
the comedic stylings of James Gregory and what they expect from him work so well in the context of everything else that's being expected because he's kind of that chaotic presence within the precinct. There are times where I wonder if he's just ad-libbing everything just because how Lyndon sometimes gets this look on his face like, what the hell are you saying? <laughs> yes, I noticed that too. Oh, and I'm, I, I think there's probably some of that is that like it, it kind of feels like there's no way around it. I mean, again, like, you know, Danny Arnold is who Danny Arnold was and there was always a very tight ship being run. But I believe at this time, Danny Arnold wasn't in charge anymore. I believe we're in the Reinhold Ouija era where he's kind of taken a step back due to his health. So I, you know, I, I will say, I think for me, this is something I noticed and you had mentioned it last time and I'm going to come back to it this time. I really don't like the intro for this show now. No, no. It's atrocious. Uh, everybody looks really strange. Like I, I, I didn't really notice it last time, but I like focused on it this time because you had said it last time. Oh my God. It, the, it's it, every single one of the, sh- the kind of action freeze frame, sh- the freeze frame shots that they use are just like the most banal pedantic bullshit. Like I just don't, I don't get what they were going for given how like, you know, Barney walking into the precinct and <laughs> that is seared in my memory. And maybe it's a little bit of nostalgia for that. But at the same time, I also just like the thing with Ron Carey is so bizarre. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on at all. It's and the Landisburg one is the only one that makes sense only because they've already done it. So it's just like, I've already seen this once. Everyone else is just like standing at like a filing cabinet and looking bizarre. And you had mentioned it last time. And I really like, it was like, oh, you know, when you have something pointed out to you, you can't ignore it anymore. It was like that. <laughs> and I find myself watching it every time. I don't even skip it because I like want to just oh. like see what I want to see every time. Like, maybe it's just me. Like, I would never skip. I don't skip the end credits either. I watch it all the way through every nice. single time. I watch the openings. I watch the closings. If it had commercials, I'd watch the commercials. Well, I would watch the commercials for sure, which is a super fucked up thing, given that we've spent so much time as entertainment watchers asking for them to remove them. But, uh, you know, alas, a, a commercial from 72 or 80, 81 or whenever the entire run of this show, I would I kind of would like that now, like to have these shows presented with a little bit of context. Like outside context. I think that could be interesting. I mean, some people wouldn't vibe with it, but I mean, there are people who post YouTube videos that are hours long of just ads, just like every single fucking ad known to man. Well, I sent you, did you get that clip that I sent that was like MTV ads from, I think it was 84 or something. And there's a Landisburg commercial in there where he's on the phone to the time life operator and talking to us, the audience about this great (laughs) offer that's going on as he's like on hold with the operators, just like, oh yeah, just a minute. And I, I, I did, I did see that. I mean, again, like Steve Landisberg is just, I don't know. I mean, again, we say it every time I feel like at this point, but he is absolutely at this point, my favorite part of the show and everything, everything that he does is funny and everything that he does seems like it is another show, but I think him having this weirdo personality that at a lot of times kind of butts heads with everybody was a smart decision because it's like fish was right. Fish kind of butted heads with everybody, but Landisberg is way more lovable than fish ever was intentionally, but. Oh yeah. At least Landisberg isn't ripping on his wife who isn't even (laughs) present to defend herself. (laughs) Right. That's fair. And I don't know if fish would wear a blue eyeshadow. 
like Steve Landisberg did. Yeah, Landisberg really went for the he makeup. He did. Part of that. Yeah. yeah, that shot where he's like standing in the doorway of Barney's office. He's like, "Is it the glasses?" And he takes his glasses off. It's like, mm, it wasn't the glasses. <laughs> it was not the glasses. But I, the sincerity of Landisberg's character, like I don't know, Dietrich. I always feel like, yes, he's annoying. Yes, he can be kind of pedantic per Barney, but he's he's a lovable character, and I think he obviously means well. And you know, he's an alien, so yeah. Well, what what is really a shame though is that since he was in drag, I now am grooming little kids and diddling them. So oh. you got to really be careful. You can't see people in drag, folks. You know, they might read a story to you or try to just live and breathe our air. Just can't have it. I don't know if you know this, but the easiest way to convince someone that you don't diddle kids is to sing a song about how you don't diddle kids. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> I mean, if you sing a song about how you don't diddle kids, I'm pretty sure you diddle kids. <laughs> how many songs did Michael Jackson record about diddling kids, though? <laughs> um, or not I, diddling kids? Uh, did he ever say he didn't diddle kids? <laughs> That's just foolish. That's foolish. <laughs> yeah, there's doo-doo with feces all over the wall. <laughs> <laughs> God, I mean, hey, that's a drag is a slippery slope, folks. Yeah. One day you're watching RuPaul's Drag Race. The next day you're making YouTube videos and sending your underwear to children. I mean, that is the slippery slope that they talk about here. I I do love that we saw a drag episode, given the current climate of everything surrounding drag. And they don't like there's no trigger warning. There's no warning of anything. It's presented oh, very God. matter of factly. Yeah. I guess my question to you is, because I know that this did happen, but like, doesn't this idea of putting male officers in drag and sending them out into the city just seem like a bad idea, though? Like, oh, it on, seems like, like a horrible idea. <laughs> OK, like. Because I know that they keep like trotting it out as a joke, and I'm sure at some point, and if we ha- if we don't, because he's mentioned it, I would like to see Barney in drag. Obviously, like that's the moment that we're never going to get because I think it's already. I mean, he mentions as much to Landisburg. He's like, "Well, when I was in drag, right. like, we never got to see this. This feels like a shame." Uh, it's weird that they keep trotting this out though, like because it feels like something that like really bad idea. Like like a really dangerous idea. Right, right. When they sent Wentworth out to be the undercover person, that made sense. Right. But to send out Fish or Chano or any of these guys, it just, yeah, I I don't get it. Unless they're sending them specifically to like gay areas and they want to sting the gay guys, but that's not how Barney rolls. Like right. I think they're really looking for sex perverts in the park type of thing and waiting for guys to come up and try to hit on them. And I'm just like, how, why this, they're not yeah. fooling anybody. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's, and, and for me, that is the big takeaway. It's like, I, I don't, this isn't a, it's never been believable. It always right. feels like it's for a joke, for a gag, which is perfectly fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but like, in reality, that is the worst of worst idea. <laughs> Just like a really unbelievably bad idea, frankly. Well, and I'm trying to remember the last time somebody went in drag because it feels like quite a few seasons. Like, I don't think... That any well, I think the last time that it was happening was when Barney was making Harris shave his mustache. Right. And that was the beginning of last season. Yeah. Okay. So it was all of last season after that beginning part that okay. So now we've got Landisburg. He's going through it. I wonder 
wonder if we'll see Ron Carey in drag, which would probably be more believable since he's a little guy versus fucking tall Landisberg going out there. <laughs> because I forget how tall he is until he comes in and stands in the doorway and you're just like, oh wow, yeah, he's he's much taller than Barney. He's taller than a lot of people that are in the precinct. That woman has got a big dress on. <laughs> I mean, when when he walks in from the bathroom, it is kind of startling. Yes. Because <laughs> yeah, he's a big dude and that's a big dress and that's a big wig. He has a big head, Steve Landisberg. Like <laughs> he it's just I don't know. Like I said, when he takes his glasses off and they just like linger on him for a second, it's like, man, he's this guy's enjoying himself. Cause like, oh my God. To get paid to do this for a living, like, oh, you're, today we're going to have you dress up in drag. And like, and then everybody's just going to get to make jokes for an entire episode. Like, yeah, okay. Like, I, f- I feel like at this point, it's like a rite of passage on this show. Oh, yeah. You know, totally. like Steve Landisberg was on the show for a season and now he's kind of built ahead of steam. And now in the second season or in the second season that he's really on the show as like a main player, they do the they do the thing that they've done with a lot of other people, you know. Chano and Abe Vigoda and everybody else got their kind of drag moment. So finally he is. And I wonder if, yeah, in season seven, if Ron Carey will, because that would kind of, that would track, I guess. Mm-hmm. And we've never seen Luger, right? No, never seen him in drag. Right. <laughs> but that doesn't mean he's not doing it. That's true. I, I'm shipping Luger being gay really hard. <laughs> I mean, again, the show has given us enough clues that this, I mean, he broke off his engagement. Okay. Like Bonnie, I went down to this new part of New York. They got rainbow flags everywhere. I I fit right in. so let's move on to the slave uh which is a story about a it's a it's a driver that gets into a car accident and then after they arrest the driver they find out oh he's actually the personal slave of this uh diplomat so we have a little bit of diplomatic immunity going on in this one, which I, I always I, appreciate. I thought about that when he was like, he's got diplomatic immunity, Barney. Barney just walks out, shoots him in the head. <laughs> There's your diplomatic immunity. Throw somebody through a fish tank. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it's kind of nice to see, you know, people of different color in this episode, uh, that their Burmese was uh, kind of interesting as well. And then Stanley Camel shows up as Lance Parks, the um, kind of the government liaison to basically be like, hey, don't cause any trouble. This guy's a diplomat. And Camel, I think he's been on the show before. He's one of these great character actors. I didn't realize until I was looking him up the other day that he passed away in 2008 because he was so ubiquitous that he just. He's been in every TV show I've watched, it feels like. He just is always there. And I always think of him as the character of Kaczynski from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. That's what I remember him from, for whatever reason. I just always, like, when he walked in, I was like, that guy should be in a Starfleet uniform, for whatever reason. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't know why. But, like, he, I mean, you know. That that for me was my thing. But yeah, I mean, God, go look. Yeah, look at his IMDb. It's like, Jesus, mother of God. Like, oh, yeah. Like every TV show in the probably from like the early 80s on, really, like just like and things like I've never heard of things that lasted for one season, TV movies and stuff. Yeah. Like what a what a career. This is actually his first time on Barney. He'll come back uh, in the 13th episode of the eighth season. And 
otherwise that's it just two appearances which is odd because as we've mentioned many a time this is a character actor's heaven to be on bernie miller because you just keep coming back yeah that's true but uh, Manu Tupu and Sumant do not come back. But I, I no. will say to your point, the fact that we have more actors of color in the show is welcome because there have been plenty of female and male actors, but not a whole lot of like actors of color other than obviously Ron Glass. <laughs> you know, yeah. The, the only one for the most part, it feels like. So in Manu Tupu, I was looking up his filmography. That guy had been in a a whole bunch of stuff for a lot of years. I mean, only, only quote unquote, 32 credits, but he had a long career uh, that stretched back quite a way. So that was pretty, uh, pretty interesting looking at his filmography. He's got a great look to him too. I mean, I clearly, if you go and look at his Wikipedia or IMDb, you can see the kind of characters that he was playing at one point in his career <laughs> being cast as, you know, well, he's brown skinned folks. So play he's an Indian <laughs> or an Indian. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I love that he's like a diplomat here and he has like a sense like an, he has like an air of like pretentiousness about him, walks in with that suit and that hair. You know, he looks like he actually looks a lot like it would remind me of his Dr. Zeta Acosta from Fear and Loathing with that oh. hair, with that. That I hair, see that. yeah, you know, like the the kind of poofed out hair, and then the suit. I was expecting him to be wearing black gloves, and then it would have completed the ensemble. But he did look a little like Doctor Gonzo for me. But I love the character that he plays. It's a very interesting character to have walk into the precinct for sure. Yeah, and just some of it feels like cultural differences, but at the heart of it, that you know, this episode is called the slave, and that he basically has an indentured servant who will never get out of uh servitude. Obviously, that brings up a lot of interesting points, and especially to Harris, which makes a lot of sense. But everybody's pretty mad, especially Wojo, and Wojo's really trying to stick up for the guy. Wojo's on the warpath in these two episodes, yeah. uh, big time. And I, I appreciate that. He's not so much on the warpath in the next episode, but definitely the last episode and even more so this one, because him and Harris are getting angry together, which is not something that we've really seen a whole lot. Normally they're kind of like butting heads about things. I mean, you know, I can, I can think of the, a lot of those opportunities that we've seen where the two of them are kind of at each other's throats about things, but here they're like together, which I, I appreciate that kind of twist of the storytelling. Yeah, no, that's really nice. I, I like, they are like apes. They are stronger together. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I do like the demure character of uh, William New, the the chauffeur. I mean, again, like there's a lot of jokes and comedy that they mine from the the way his character reacts to things. But I do like by the end of it, it it, it feels like it kind of has a happy ending. I can't can't Ish. really tell, though. Like, yeah, because like at the end of the day. They did kind of free this guy from indentured servitude, but now he's just in the United States. <laughs> like, right, right. He's there without a passport. <laughs> he doesn't have a job. And he's like, I'll be fine. I'll land on my feet. And it's like, you know, a year later and this man is homeless. Like, I, you know, it's just, mm -hmm. I just, for me, it was like, I, it was kind of like that episode where they go and rescue the guy from his apartment that hasn't come out. Oh, and no. then he just, actually fucking dies it's like hey i get that they're trying to do good but they might be doing more harm than good i don't think that's that here but there is that like twinge of melancholy where he's like i don't really have anything but i'm gonna go out into the big city and make my way and it's like okay okay it's kind of a weird ending i guess 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, it's an interesting episode. We've got, I believe, Luger returns in this one, still talking about Brownie. Yeah, which is nice that we've got the carryover from one episode to the next. Yeah, um, it's it's weird because they didn't really mention them before. What this season or was it last season? This is like a thing that Luger's been going on and on about recently, but he mm. hadn't really mentioned them. Like it's not like he mentioned them the first time we saw him, and it's like you you meet Brownie and everything, and they're coming in and out of the precinct. Like these are dudes that are up up upstate New York or something is what it seems like. They're like you know doing something somewhere after having been on the force you know they're up on the farm where the old cops go to die is what it sounds like out in new rochelle yeah yeah i i i i love james gregory in this show i really do i he's he even when he's kind of like in the way which is this the episode where he's in the way or is the next episode where he's in the way Oh boy. And he keeps like trying to enter. I think it's this one. Cause at the end he comes in, he's like, are all them Burmese fellas out of here? That's right. Yeah. yeah. But he's like in the way in this episode. And he's, you know, like at one point he's in Barney's office and then they go in there, him and um, Camel do. And he's like, Hey, I need you to leave. And he's like, I'll go sit downstairs in the men's bathroom. There's a bench down there. Right. And, and I love that oh because God. like he keeps like coming in from, you know, off stage left or right. And then like looking around and being like, well, there's nothing for me to do and then just wanders back off and that's a great way to use that character because in a lot of ways like there when he was being used early on it was like he was getting in the way of things like now it's just comes in says some stupid or weird things and then just leaves you know with his with his fedora (laughs) it's a slick dresser i'll tell you that much oh yeah you know who i really liked in this one and she doesn't have nearly enough screen time is peg shirley as the woman that uh william knew hit with the car and I love, especially when she starts to get into a bidding war to yes. help him get out of his servitude. She can only go up to 3000 out of $14,000, but yeah, at least she's making an effort. And then I like the little bit at the end where Barney's like, well, you did bid on him. Do you want to take him home with you? And she's like, no, I have a Filipino. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So you were bidding on him, but you're doing the exact same thing. Got it. Right. Exactly. I, I, I do love the sly sense of humor that this show tends to have about those kind of things. And I, you know, the, the title of the episode being the slave, I get it. I feel like it's, I, I wanted there to be more of the not serious stuff, but you know what I mean? Kind of the musings. And I feel like it was a lot of joke fodder um, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. time around, which is okay. But yeah, what a, what a strange, this is a strange episode i feel like of all the of all the cast of people that have wandered into the precinct a ambassador and his quote indentured servant unquote is a is a pretty big leap from like just you know some sex workers that they keep having you know or like gay men that they keep having to deal with being harassed that's yeah. like a that's a much more interesting setup and i i think they do it pretty well actually though i haven't seen any gay people other than the very first episode with the gay cop Ugh. i haven't seen many gay people like I guess Marty and his boyfriend are out in California. Yeah. And the, I've re- what's the officer's name? The one that's uh, the, the gay one. Zatelli. Thank you. I'm disappointed that we haven't seen him again. Like, yeah, I get it. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think we, when we did that episode, I think we looked and it was like, he doesn't show up again until the next season or something like that. It's, it's wo- woefully underrepresented, but you know, I was thinking about this when we were talking in the last segment about like, oh, you know, Dietrich dresses up in drag. And then you mentioned Wentworth. That that was the only female character of of any consequence on this show. And it's, right. it is weird to me that the show has, has never added a female character to the precinct. 
Well, they had that one, the quote unquote Latina. Oh, who Batista. Was actually, yeah. And then she just disappeared. Yeah. 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 I, I, it's, it's of all the things that are underrepresented in the show, a female cop feels like now that the show is like, again, 79, 80, transitioning into the 80s, it feels like that would have been a smart addition, like a permanent female cop added into the precinct or like a you know someone comes in and replaces someone or they're butting heads with them as an you know an upper up or something it's just that you know again like that of all things feels like the the lack of representation in the show that really is needed is a is a little bit of a female voice other than the female characters being the ones that wander into the precinct as damsels in distress for the most part or speaking of the next episode strip club as strippers right so, strip of course train, i should say yes and here we have some returning characters, well, returning actors, I should say. So uh, Rosanna DeSoto, we've seen her three times, including she was a prostitute in that, what was the name of that episode, where where it was out of the precinct that took place oh, yeah. in that apartment building where they were having a siege. The squatting um, one, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So there's that one. Um, then Diana Canova is on here. Oh, the lovely Diana Canova. Not to be a lech, but um, you know, we talked a little bit about soap off the air, and she was just so amazing in soap. Um, and then she was also in the first nudie musical, which is a big favorite of mine. Um, and she was also on the show before, and here she is back as another stripper. But this one, she's a stripper with a brain of gold because she's going back for what is it, her doctorate, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, or masters at least. She's definitely got it going on here, and well, in many ways. And then um, I want to say, even the guy who makes the complaint about the strip joint—he has been on the show before. Yeah, and then that voice, that voice, that voice and he always yes. plays like the same kind of character, right? Like, oh, I am a very angry old Eastern European man. Like, yep, you, Stefan Metterling. Was the was one of the characters that he played, Mister Metterling? Uh, yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Walter Janowitz, and yeah, he was in a ton of stuff. And then James Cromwell, he's also been on this show, and here he is back as a government agent. Who? What is it? They're somehow the government is the- funding <laughs> the strip club. No, it's oh, it's more con. It's so convoluted. It. It's like it's it's all so convoluted. It's almost idiot proof. So they they were they found out that somebody was embezzling money from the Department of Energy and the person who was embezzling money bought a strip joint. And because they took possession of all that guy's possessions, the U.S. government or more aptly, the Department of Energy is now in charge of running a strip joint which is it is so convoluted it's idiot proof it's that the the, pre- the premise is hilarious they don't do enough with it but james cromwell is fucking hilarious in this episode he's he plays great. that dickhead government like official so well but he's also so harried he's like do you understand yesterday i spent time ordering beer nuts <laughs> and it's just like oh my god but it's so the like, jokes on the napkins <laughs> yeah and it's so funny though like it's he he plays the character he needs to play perfectly and it's james cromwell for fuck's sake like he's a he, he's a he's just one of the great character actors i mean one of the great actors period but like in terms of like being a character actor he's he's up there obviously oh yeah 
He, yeah, he's fantastic. That's really the main part of the story. But what I really love is Todd Sussman in here as uh, what's his character's name? Edward Yackel. And he thinks that he's he's basically trying to eat Kenneth Tigar's lunch here, Tiger's lunch. Yeah. He's coming in as a crazy person who says, I have, uh, I, I might spontaneously combust. Wojo catches him taking a dip in a pond and, or in a, uh, sorry, not a pond, in a fountain. And it's super cold in here. Thank you, uh, says the energy guy for doing your part, which I, I really liked. And then there's that whole thing of Barney having the space heater in his. Yeah, it's kind of balmy in here. Yeah, Yeah, Rod Carey, that line cracked me the fuck up. It's kind of balmy in here. (laughs) Or Wojo going, you being cold isn't going to make us warm. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which I also just found to be like, it was like, I couldn't tell if it's meant to be passive aggressive, but it felt kind of passive aggressive. It It felt very passive aggressive. So yeah, Sussman comes in here and he's just like, oh, I was burning up. Oh, the fire. And he starts doing the whole thing of like, you know, they put him in the cage. Oh, I'm burning up. Uh. And then I love how the, uh, the the trash can emulates and, you know, it's like, oh, see, he's got the power. Whoa, he's a fire starter. I wonder if he smacks his bitch up too. Yeah, uh, right. I was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say, though, it seems like they don't have the definition of spontaneous combustion down, right? Because spontaneous. Spontaneous combustion has to do with you exploding. And right. he he is what you're talking about. He is what um he's Morgan, a fast daughter. Yeah, he <laughs> he's what Morgan Shepard's son is in uh in the X-Files. I always I oh, always yeah. think of that X-Files episode where he's like, oh, I have fire starter. Hey, hey, that fucking British fire starter episode is such a such a treat, frankly. But I mean, again, like that's what this is. It's not spontaneous combustion because if it were spontaneous combustion, he would explode. Like that's what, oh, yeah, that's yeah. what that means. Uh, you just leave a little spot on his, right. on his drum kit. Yeah, some feet, it. some feet yes. left with shoes on, um, smoking boots. Yeah, I will say though, it goes back to the paranoids with proof thing. Right. The Danny yeah. Arnold paranoids with proof because they have this whole scene. I enjoyed that. They actually have this scene where they're like, well, how the fuck did that light on fire? Did you did you did you throw your ashes in there? Were you standing over there? And I love because they haven't really done that in any of these other paranormal supernatural episodes that the Kenneth Tigar thing. They just let him go ape shit in the right. cell. And they're just like, I guess, was there the thing where it's like, oh, I can feel the succubus. She's here. But again, right. there was never there was never anything like this where something actually happens. Like, And there's no explanation. There isn't other than this guy can actually make this happen, which. I mean, again, judging by the way Barney Miller has done things in the past, that's where I come down on what's going on. <laughs> is this where you get your news? Right. Is, is this the forefront of info wars for you? Yeah, this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is another great episode. I think, for me, these three have been very solid. I mean, they may not be the best things in the world, but they're definitely not the worst. I think they're just three really solid episodes. Yeah. Yeah. And even though, you know, this episode kind of has a, a weird contrived thing about the government owning a strip club, but and the strip club story doesn't really end up going anywhere. It, it and almost like serves to exist to further the the Todd Sussman plot because the the strippers end up interacting with him and kind of being mm-hmm. like, oh, you know. 
Rosanna DeSoto is like, I'm going to suck that dick is what she's doing. Like, if you get out of here and you're looking to see what I do is what she says. Like, here's my card. And I love I love that. Just like the open sexuality of the characters. But boy, Landisberg comes off like a creep in this episode. Oh, boy. Like, it's it's not charming at all. It's like it it's a little much and I I can't tell if if we're supposed to laugh or not. But I wasn't necessarily laughing. I was just like, mm, "Man, like you're kind of a kind of pushing it. A, just a just a tad." Yeah. Yeah. They are. Right? Um yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it there's a fine line there. And I don't know if it's just the year that this is coming out that it's okay to be that aggressive or just that it's kind of tone deaf. Yeah, it's he's very aggressive. I mean, he's not like, hey, want to bang or anything, but it's more just like, you know, well, at my apartment, you know, ooh, my apartment's right. close. And she's like, I'm okay. And he's like, my apartment is close. And it's like, dude, like, get the fucking hint the first time. Like, yeah, yeah. But yeah. hey, it's Diana, Diana Canova. You know, what do right. you do? Yeah. I mean, hey, look, by the end of it, <laughs> I'm just going to point out that by the end of it, I guess he wore her down enough that she's like, oh. Yeah, which again, like, you know, optics of that aren't great, but the the kind of the final joke of the episode has it 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 serves that, you know, that whole storyline that allows him to have the, you know, and you think you're hot. (laughs) (laughs) Landisberg's delivery is fantastic, but you have to have all that kind of creepiness to get to that point, which is unfortunate. But yeah, yeah, it is. I I would say probably just tone deaf, probably like the aggressiveness, the aggressive sexuality of Steve Landisberg sometimes, because this isn't the first time he's done it, mind you. No, well, I mean, he's not fucking a nun or anything, but. But he was tried to. (laughs) (laughs) He has. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Fair. Fair. Yeah. God, I, I is this the is this the segment or is this the episode with uh, Ron Carey talking about the fluctuation in manpower? Yes, yes. When he comes in, he's giving them their mail and everything, and he's just like lays down the Levitt mail on the Levitt desk, and he's just like, "Hmm, <laughs> that might be two episodes ago, but it's definitely in this run." Yeah, he's uh Ron Carey has grown on me for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. I still don't like his intro. But otherwise, yeah, he's been great. And I, I kind of appreciate where he's coming from now, where it's just like, hey, you let me up here sometimes when I go downstairs, just, a, you know, big fish in a small pond. Right. I'm just another peon with a blue shirt when I'm down there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I you know, I, I'm actually glad that it's less about how short he is and more about just like yeah. his like interior inferiority complex less his exterior inferiority complex like i like that that he's just very frustrated that he can't just be where where he wants to be and i do think that like i think levitt i think deserves to be in the precinct frankly like it it is kind of weird that he comes up all the time because you would think that there's got to be somebody down there who's like the fuck is levitt yeah exactly (laughs) where is he is he up there he's up there again huh i'd kind of like to meet his boss because barney's his boss when he's in the you know, in right. on the third floor or whatever, whatever floor it is, but not downstairs. There's somebody right. he's reporting to. Right. That's my point. Like, I would like to see that person because there's no way yeah. that that person's not like, where is Levitt right now? We need right. Levitt. And he's just exactly. you know, fucking off chortling with his buddies in the pre in the 12th precinct. So, yeah, no, I, I Ron Carey has has grown a lot. He didn't he had a lot further of a way to go than anybody else in the show has, too. So. And I think certain writers know how to write him better, too. Uh, you know, the three writers who wrote this episode, uh, they haven't done a lot. 
right? Like they're they're no. not they're not as prolific as some of the other writers, but I liked this version of Levitt quite a bit in this particular episode. He seemed a lot more kind of dialed in to what was going on and also more self-aware of his kind of position within what was going on. Yeah. This has been an interesting season so far. I'm seeing some, I mean, there are familiar names Mm -hmm. that we've seen before, but I'm seeing some where I'm just like, Hmm, I'm, I'm unfamiliar or they haven't written that much before. So, right. Yeah. Cause I think the people who wrote this episode wrote the last episode. (laughs) On the next episode, when we talk about the bird, that's got a story by one, two, three, four people are credited for story and two people for teleplay. That's wild. Yeah. It's a lot of Frank Dungan and Jeff Stein. And what's crazy is Wally Dalton and Shelley Zellman. I like when they write for this show quite yeah. a bit. They're re- like the two of them together are really, I don't know, something about the two of them together, whatever the kind of they're bringing to the series. Cause they've worked on open house, middle age toys, the Harris incident, the prisoner and the accusation. And then this season is the brother, the brother. Uh, and that's it. And I actually, all of those episodes in season five, I, I think those are some pretty good episodes. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm kind of disappointed that they only wrote one this season. Cause yeah, the brother is, I, I don't think the brother is the best of these three, but I think you, you put it best. Like these three are pretty solid. This is a good, like the show is in its sixth season and it's still kicking out great episodes. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm, I'm curious about, like, is have we hit a plateau like because i'm always afraid that it's going to go downhill Mm -hmm. i i don't think it's going to get better than this which would be amazing if it did because i'm already having a great time same but i'm wondering if we're just like at a plateau and if it goes down when's it going to go down i mean hopefully they don't add like a cute kid to this hey they already tried it was called fish Oh boy. <laughs> John Cassisi just wanders into the precinct yeah. all of a sudden. Oh boy. Um, you know, I was wondering that too because I feel like, you know, we're two seasons from the end. So theoretically, if you were playing along at home, season four and five should have been where it peaked, right? Yeah. Like the halfway point, you know, the two halfway, the, the the plateau, and then this should have been the downward slide. I haven't seen a drop in quality yet. No. Knock on wood, but I kind of wonder if it's the the change in personnel. Like, had Fish and Chano and Nick all stuck around, would it be a different show than it is now? I think so. I think that Landisberg and Carrie bring a different energy to it. Well, and also, I mean, again, I think it was in between season five and six where Danny Arnold stepped back as well. And so by having other people, you know, Reinhold Ouija and others come in and and take over the reins, they, you know, they're they were trained by Danny Arnold, quote unquote, but they are still going to do their own thing and they're going to have their own voice. Right. So, yeah, I I think to your point, it is definitely a casting thing like they lucked out that people left. But also, I think they've lucked out by having. A, a nice amount of churn with the people that work like in the back of the show, because yeah, right. if Danny Arnold is training people to do the job and then they come in and are doing it as well, or even better than he did, like double success for him really. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm trying to think there have been other shows that are very similar where you get that kind of rotating 
cast and crew. I mean, thinking about even a show that I watch fairly regularly, Death in Paradise, of course, the thing is that the main detective switches out every couple seasons. But then really, you get the background players switching out as well. It's like, oh yeah, Dwayne's been gone for years now, and now you've got this guy instead, and this woman stepped out a while ago, and now it's this woman instead. So it kind of keeps it fresh, which I wouldn't normally think that I would like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I I'm with you because for the most part, I, whenever I think of a show, like, you know, to use an example that that comes to mind, the X-Files oh, at boy. the end of the fifth or sixth season, they, they, someone lost their mind and decided, I don't want to pay to David Duchovny anymore. So he left the show and who comes in, but Robert Patrick, fantastic actor. I'm sure you would agree. And people left that show like in droves because they're like, man, no more Duchovny, no, no give a shit. And like that show actually has some fantastic episodes in those seasons with, with dog hit and Reyes, but you have to be willing to go on the journey with the, with the, the showrunners or the filmmakers or whoever's creating the content. And yeah, we could have been obstinate to the change that this show has been implementing, but I think it does it really well in an organic way. Like, you know, to, to again, mention the X-Files, like that felt really contrived when he, leaves the show here yes fish left the show yes jack sue passed away but in none of it really felt contrived like even a pagoda mm-hmm. leaving didn't feel as contrived as i thought it would feel right but yeah no like the the churn of the cast as well i do wonder if like uh, you know chana was still here what the show would look like like if if they would have if they would have kind of coalesced into something else or if it would if it would be worth watching you know Yeah. So on the next episode, we're going to be talking about three episodes of Barney Miller, The Bird, The Desk, The Judge. Very simple uh, story titles here. Came uh, friends all of a sudden. Yeah. (laughs) The one with The Bird. Well, and looking through the the this season, there are plenty of the somethings, the somethings. So yeah, the uh, the season of Barney Miller with all of the the titles. The the yes yeah. <laughs> There's not enough there there, yes. right? <laughs> now now they're there. <laughs> well, until we come back and talk about those, Chris, what are you up to? Just working on podcasting over at WeirdingWayMedia.com, where you and I do plenty of monthly and weekly shows. Uh, more monthly together, weekly separately, but uh, the Culture Cast, Barney Miller, which you're already listening to, Night Gallery or Midnight Viewing, which is the Night Gallery podcast, Twilight Zone 1985, which is Dreams for Sale. It's all still there, and you can all find all of it at WeirdingWayMedia.com. What about you, Mike White? We covered a lot of stuff. Uh, the Shabby Detective is another one that we work on. We're just about to record our next episode of that. And yeah, I do a show called The Projection Booth, which is also available at projectionboothpodcast.com. And yeah, just cranking out a ton of uh, specials lately. Had a lot of good interviews kind of fall into my lap, which is great. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to be doing that. And even though I keep getting two-star reviews this week, hopefully that'll turn around. I figured after you know 12 years, people might start to like the show. Maybe I'm just not wearing them down. <laughs> not negging them enough. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> I want to thank John Walker for our theme music. And I want to thank you. Yes, you for listening. And if you do like the show, go on over to iTunes or wherever you get the show, leave a rating, leave a review. That'd be pretty keen of you. Thank you so much for doing that. 